Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The title of today's message is A Prayer for Mercy. And that really is our only prayer, isn't it? We can't come to the Lord expressing our goodness. We have none. And so we must plead the blood of Jesus. We must ask for mercy based upon his shed blood. And so that's the point of this parable that is before us this morning. It is a parable a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now last week we looked at a parable about persistent prayer. In that parable, Jesus contrasted an arrogant earthly judge who gave justice to a woman only out of self-interest. He just wanted her to get away from him. And so he finally gave in and gave her what she wanted. So Jesus contrasted that wicked judge to our God who loves his children and will surely and certainly bring about justice for them. Last week we sort of looked at that parable from a bird's eye view, um, applying it generally to the discipline of prayer in the life of all Christians. But don't forget please that the immediate context of that parable about persistent prayer is in the midst of Jesus teaching about his second coming. That's a continuation from chapter 17. And you know that editors added chapters and verses later for our benefit to help us find passages more easily. But it's one continuous thought. And so really what Jesus was calling us to persistently pray for was his second coming. And that has been the prayer of Christians for 2,000 years. Lord Jesus, come quickly. With that truth established that he is coming certainly to judge, he now turns his attention to the most important question in the world. That is, how can a person be ready for that day? How can we be ready for the judgment that is to come? In other words, how can a man or woman be justified in the eyes of a holy God? And to answer that question, the Lord Jesus employs yet another parable. And this one also has to do with the discipline of prayer. It's a parable that in my preaching I refer to more than any others. In fact, I refer to it so often that my own children make fun of me because of it. They have recited to me many times exactly what I'm going to say about it, but it's truth. And we ought to recite truth often. So let's read this familiar parable. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's what one has to do to be righteous in their own eyes. They have to put other people down. That is, you have to lower the standard of what righteousness is. As long as you're more righteous than the person you're comparing yourself to, you feel like you're on good ground. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but he who humbles himself will be exalted. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now verse 9 tells us to whom Jesus was directing this parable. Luke says to some people. That is to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. But if you've been paying any attention at all the last few months through the study of Luke, it's very clear to whom Jesus is referring, those that trusted in themselves and their own righteousness. He was talking about the Pharisees. In fact, one of the characters in the parable is named a Pharisee. This was an ongoing theme of Luke's gospel. You remember that the Pharisees were those religious leaders that the Bible variously describes as loving the greetings in the marketplace. That is, they like to have the title and the accoutrement of religious leadership. They would go to the market not to buy groceries, but to be seen of men. Oh, there goes so-and-so. He's a Pharisee. They, they love to sit in the seats of honor, Jesus said. We saw that a few chapters back when they held a banquet and they were jockeying for the positions of honor at the table. They, they love to play politics. They use these social gatherings to um, make friends in high places so that they could be elevated eventually. And then just a chapter or two ago, we saw that Jesus said they also were lovers of money. But, but probably the, the clearest expression of who they are is back in chapter 16. If you want to flip back one page or two in your Bible to chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And in verse 15 of chapter 16, he says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. They loved the esteem of men and the way they got there was justifying themselves. And so what uh, the Pharisees as a group had become was a mutual admiration society where they sat around patting each other on the back. And this man, you remember uh, at the party where Jesus was just blasting the Pharisees, broke the tension by saying, blessed are all those who eat bread in the kingdom. And that's what they did all the time. We're blessed because we're going to be right at the front of the line in heaven, or, or so they thought. And much of the New Testament is Jesus disabusing the Pharisees that they're going to be in heaven because they're Pharisees. And this, this particular parable here is hitting upon that same theme. But, but these verses, this parable, is not just addressed to the Pharisees. And I think that's why Luke said some people who were trusting in themselves. You don't have to be a Pharisee to trust in your own righteousness. This is addressed to anyone and everyone who is self-righteous. That is, they believe they are right with God because of their own intrinsic goodness. And yet from cover to cover, the Bible states that no one has intrinsic righteousness. There is none righteous, not even one, the Bible says. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And yet God's standard hasn't changed, has it? He says, be holy because I am holy. And that word holy is different than any word. In fact, that's what the word holy means, different, altogether different, perfect, sinless, perfect. Now it's interesting that, that both of the characters in this parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, seem to agree on the basics of theology. They both know that God is righteous and that those who have a relationship with him must also be righteous. Both apparently are Jewish. And maybe they're even about the same age. We don't know. 
Maybe they even grew up in the same synagogue. Maybe they attended the same Hebrew school where they heard the Old Testament read, memorized it. But it's not just because they had the Scriptures that they know God is holy. Certainly the Scriptures reveal that. But did you know in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, under influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote that we have a knowledge of God written in our hearts. That is, every man is born knowing something about God's power and His holiness. Now, we can suppress our conscience through disobedience and through sin until we're no longer sensitive to that truth. But God writes His name upon our heart. Now, as we have studied the Gospels together over the years in this church, we have noted that in His teaching, Jesus reduces all of humanity to two categories. They're either the lost or they're the saved. They're the sheep or they're the goats. The righteous or the unrighteous. And this text before us continues that theme. Here we have two men that I believe represent all of humanity. Both know that God demands righteousness. And yet one went home, Jesus said, justified, and the other left the temple that day still in his sins. And so let's begin by, by looking at these two men. Look at Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now these men were at two poles on the religious scale. On one end you had the Pharisee who was a meticulous keeper and teacher of the law. He made sure his clothing was just right. He made sure that his words were just right. And he made sure that his ceremonial keeping of the law was public for all to see. Now, on the other hand of the religious spectrum, you have this tax collector who would have been considered an outcast and a rebel. Really, he would be considered a traitor because the tax collectors were those who were in cahoots with the occupying Roman government. Now, you remember that Rome spread far and wide its influence across the Mediterranean world, and its primary interest was taxation. They built roads and bridges so that all roads would lead back to Rome and that tax revenue could keep coming to the empire. And so to do that effectively, they, they had to contract out with locals who knew the jargon and, and, and knew the culture. And, and so they would give contracts to these men called tax collectors and they would collect the taxation that Rome required and anything above and beyond that they got to keep. And so this business was rife with corruption. And so over time to be a tax collector became synonymous with being a crook. And it was a well-earned reputation. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose for one of his inner circle a tax collector? This man Matthew, who God chose to give us one of the four gospels. There's another tax collector named Zacchaeus who's mentioned later who came to faith in the Lord Jesus. It seems like Jesus sort of relished in saving tax collectors because his grace is greater than our sin, isn't it? So here, here's another man, this time in a story that Jesus tells. He's very different than the Pharisee. You see, the Pharisee was likely well thought of in the community. He was looked up to and admired. And we would expect him to be at the temple. In fact, Jesus said, these guys often went out in public to be seen of men. We would also expect him to make a big fuss when he went to the temple. 
Jesus had to rebuke the Pharisees in another part of scripture that when they do alms before men, when they give to the poor, not to sound a trumpet before them and draw attention to it. And so what would happen? These guys would go up to the temple sometimes twice a day to pray and outside of the temple would be these beggars and they would make a big deal. Not only were they so pious they were going to the temple to pray, but they would give to the poor along the way. On the other end, there's the tax collector who was not giving to the poor. He was taking from the poor. That, that after all, was his job. Considered a traitor and a villain looked up to by almost no one in the community. And it's very surprising that he would even be in the temple. And it's not surprising, however, that he kept a low profile. It seems that the Pharisee put himself right in a position of prominence that day of prayer. And while... The Pharisee, we'll see in a moment, was huddling in a corner. In Jerusalem at the temple, there were morning prayers, which came after the morning sacrifices. And there were evening prayers, which came after the evening sacrifices. That, that is the pattern in the Old Covenant, isn't it? There is sacrifice and atonement, and then there is communion. We live in an era today that we don't need any more sacrifices, do we? The Lord Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. And, and as we celebrated last week, we can come to him at all times in prayer. But these people had to have sacrifice first and, and then prayer. And they had to keep repeating these sacrifices day and night because the people kept sinning. But this tells us of, of the vast gulf of difference between a holy God and a sinful man. And that was to remind the people that God is perfect we're not. To have fellowship with him, we have to have something done about our sin problem. And so th those are the two men, the Pharisee, well thought of, looked up to, the tax collector, an outsider, and a traitor. And now we see the two prayers that these men offered. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. How sweet. Swindlers unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I thank you that I'm not like other people. And I don't often give people advice on praying publicly, but don't do that. <laughs> uh, I wasn't there, but a friend of mine was in a revival meeting one time where a man was called upon to, prayer, to pray, and he stood up before the service and said, Lord, I thank you that I had the good sense to choose you, unlike some people. Well, that's not a prayer of humility. Similarly, the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And he did something that he should have done at that moment. He begins to confess sin. Now, we ought to all confess sin. The Bible says to confess our sins one to another. The Bible says if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, prayers of confession are right and appropriate for God's people. The problem with this man's confession is that he was confessing sin, just not his own. He was going around the room confessing other people's sin. That's the picture I get in my mind. Here's a guy, there, there's a room full of other worshipers. He stands up, clears his throat and, and prays, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he just begins to go out around the room in his mind. I'm not a swindler. And maybe he was looking at a businessman who he considered to be unscrupulous in his affairs. I'm not unjust. And maybe that wicked judge from the previous parable was standing next to him. 
And then he says, I'm, I'm not an adulterer. Maybe he had heard a rumor about the guy over in the corner. But he saved what he seems to think is the worst sinner for last. He says, even like this tax collector. Can, can you hear the words dripping with disdain? When he thought about this tax collector, he, he put him in a category worse than a swindler, an unjust judge, an adulterer. Then having confessed the sins of his fellow worshipers, he began to list his own virtues without ever uttering a word about his own sin, mind you. He begins to list his virtues. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, nothing wrong with fasting. Jesus told his disciples, when you fast, he told them how to do it. Not if you fast, he assumed we would do it. And in those days, fasting once a week would have put you in the category of pious. Fasting twice a week would put you in the category of greatness in their minds. And so he was doing it twice a week. He says, I pay tithes, tenths of all that I get. And by the way, our temptation is to say, oh, he's exaggerating. I don't think so. I think he did fast twice a week, and I think he meticulously gave the tithe. In fact, Jesus said of some of the Pharisees that many of them tithed from their herb garden. That, that is, if they had a little garden in the backyard to, to grow herbs in, those things that we would think were not worth very much, they would meticulously, if they picked one, uh, 10 leaves of basil, one of those was going to the temple. That They were going to tie that and they kept meticulous records of that. Not out of sense of, of love for the Lord, but out of sense of self-interest. Kind of like that judge we saw last week who gave justice not because of compassion for the widow, but because of self-interest. And so I think he, he was honest when he said he did these things. But, but you remember when Jesus talked about those Pharisees who meticulously tithe from their herb garden, he said the problem with that is not the tithing. He, he didn't rebuke tithing. He didn't rebuke fasting. He says the problem is that, that they tithe from their herb garden and neglect the weightier matters of the law. They had lust in their heart. Some of them were not taking care of their elderly parents. And then suddenly it shifts from the Pharisees' self-congratulations to the second prayer here, and that is the tax collector's prayer. Look at verse 13, and it begins with that transitional conjunction, but. means instead, in juxtaposition against, opposite of. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, this man's posture and proximity are, are very telling. The scripture says he stood some distance away. There are those who are experts in body language. And they tell us that we can pick up certain emotions just by how people hold their hands or their heads or, their, or, or they stand in their posture. Well, this man's posture was that he, he was distant. He was far away. 
I take it he didn't feel worthy to stand on the same ground as these other men who were praying. And probably he, he didn't want to be noticed. Maybe he's hiding out in a dark corner. And yet they did notice him because if they hadn't already, the Pharisee pointed it out like that tax collector over there trying to hide. And his posture was that he had his head bowed in shame. And we're not told much about the Pharisee's prayer, but he stood and I have the image of his head held high. There certainly seems to be no shame there. And sometimes we bow our head in the presence of one greater. And I think that's certainly part of it here. But I take it that his head was bowed in shame. When we've done something that we're embarrassed of, we have a hard time looking someone in the eye. And that seems to be this man's situation. We know that because the scripture says he began to pound his breast. He was in anguish and grief over his own sin. In the Jewish culture, when someone was particularly overcome with emotion, particularly grief, that they would do two things. One, they would tear their clothing, and the other is they would beat their breast. And then he said this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if there's anything that separates these two men, it's this sentence. You see, there, there's no rationalization of his sin. He, he might have been tempted to say when people said, you're a sinner, you're a tax collector, you're a traitor to the Romans. He might have said, do you enjoy those nice bridges and streets that you use every day? How, where do you think those came from? Someone had to collect the taxes and you're just mad at me. I'm just a messenger. So he, he could have rationalized his sin. Neither did he list his own achievements. Don't you find it interesting? No, no matter how uh, gratuitous a person's sin is, when they're confronted about it, they, they always point out their good traits. When, when someone begins a sentence with you or an email that I know I'm no angel, you know there's about to be some rationalization going on. Because then they put a comma and the word but, and then they say, here's what I do right. He didn't do any of that. He didn't list his achievements. He didn't tell all the times that, that he tipped the local waitress 30%. He didn't talk about the money he, he slipped to the homeless man. There were no grand words. There's no eloquence here. Just brokenness. Neither were there any excuses. He could have said, well, you know, I grew up in a broken home. What do you expect? I didn't have the advantages of this Pharisee. Maybe I had to drop out of school early and make my own way in life. There's none of that. Even his confession is different. Obviously, he confessed his own sin and not someone else's. But even the fact that his confession was not of specific transgressions. And there's a place for that. I think when we confess our sins, we need to be as specific as possible. And I'm, there, there's a time and place for that. But here's his confession. He said, I am the sinner. That is, I am a sinner through and through. He, he was agreeing what, what we say often around here, that we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. You see the difference? Our nature is to sin. That, that's who we are by virtue of being Adam's children. 
And so he doesn't say I, I robbed, that's obvious. He doesn't say I, I'm a traitor to my country, that's obvious. He just says I am a sinner through and through. And not just a sinner, he uses this definite article, the I am the, the sinner. It reminds us of what the Apostle Paul said about his own sin. He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. That, that's what he was saying. He was not concerned with these other men's sins. Uh, to him, his sins towered over everyone else's. He didn't say, I, I'm a good man who's made some bad decisions. I hear that a lot in so-called apologies in the media. A few months ago, there was a sports team who one of their players did something egregious that cost his team a win. It had nothing to do with the, the playing field. It was just unsportsmanlike conduct in his celebration. Cost his team the win. It was a big game. And his coach was interviewed immediately after, and these were his first words, that's not who we are. That doesn't reflect on our program or, or this young man. This is an aberration. That's not who we are as a team. Now, he failed to mention that two seasons earlier, another one of his players did the exact same thing. And so I said to my television, yeah, that's who you are. <laughs> but friends, the point is that's who we all are. We don't sin as an aberration. We sin because we're sinners. Now, we do our best to suppress it, to put on a good front, to pretend we're not as bad as we really are. But the truth is, that is exactly who we are. And so, that's the prayer of the tax collector. It's a prayer of contrition. It's a prayer of confession. And verse 14 tells us that these two prayers were met with two different results. Verse 14, Jesus is speaking to his apostles. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two results. First of all, the tax collector, this time he deals with first, he says he, he went down to his house justified. Now, what does the word justified mean? It's a legal term. It means right with the judge. And so when we talk about our salvation, we do so in terms of justification and sanctification and glorification. But justification is that moment in time where the Holy Spirit opens our blind spiritual eyes. We agree with God's assessment with us as sinners and we confess those sins and we repent and we trust Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross to pay for our sins, God the Father, the righteous judge, pounds his gavel, so to speak, and declares us justified. That is forgiven. No longer owing a debt. And scripture says the tax collector went down to his house justified. Now, we, we've read that parable so many times it doesn't surprise us anymore. But I assure you, the people to whom Jesus was talking that day would have been shocked that of these two men, the one that Jesus says was justified is the tax collector. Because they lived in a culture which esteemed outward virtue. 
and assumed that those who were right in the eyes of God were those like the Pharisees. Jesus said, not so. So the tax collector went down to his house right with God. But what about the Pharisee? It says, uh, it's subtle here. You have to find it. As I tell you, this man, tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus is saying that the tax collector went to his house justified instead of, that's what the word rather means, than the Pharisee. And so here's the implication of that. Jesus is not saying that humility and contrition over sin and calling out to God for grace and mercy is another way to heaven. He's saying it is the only way to heaven. Because most people in Jesus' day, the Jews, believe that the way someone got to heaven was through personal morality. That is, holding tightly and keeping as best as one could the Old Testament law. Keeping the ceremonies that were laid out in the Old Testament. And by doing this, they thought they could be right with God. Well, this man, this tax collector, had, had no hope of getting to heaven that way. And so... He did the only thing he could do in a moment of desperation. He called out to God for mercy. When, when you're standing before the bar, a judge, and you're guilty of sin, you're caught red-handed, the only plea you have is not for justice, but for what? Mercy. And this is what this man does. But unless someone would, to, would misinterpret the meaning of the parable... He was not saying, if you're caught red-handed and everyone knows you're guilty, call out to God for mercy. He's saying everyone needs mercy. The man who everyone assumed to be right with God was not. And the point, remember, of this parable is that these two men represent all of humanity, which Jesus always puts into two categories. Here are the two categories set before us again. Every human being is in one of these two categories. You're either justified by God's grace or else you're still in your sins. That's it. You're justified by the grace of God or you're still in your sins. And that's why he says this way. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's no exceptions to the rule. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so remember this parable attempts to answer the most important question in the universe. How can a, a man be right with God? But it, it leads to another question because we've studied so much about the righteousness and holiness of God. These two men, remember, had good theology at that point. They both agreed that God was holy and righteous, that to be with him, you needed to be righteous. What they disagreed on was how to become righteous. The Pharisee thought he could get there on his own. We call that self-righteousness. The tax collector realized that he had no righteousness and his only hope was the righteousness of God. So how can a just God, one who we said last week has the same attitude and disposition towards sin all the time, he hates it. How can a just God justify sinners? Well, friends, that's the gospel, isn't it? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that sets apart biblical Christianity from every other ism in the world. Biblical Christianity says that 
we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us have a hope within ourselves. And therefore, if we are to be saved, it must be through what the old theologians called alien righteousness. It has to be righteousness that is imputed to us from outside of ourselves. It is not to be drawn from within. And if you line up all of the religions and the cults of the world and put into that mix biblical Christianity, you could simply take out biblical Christianity and put it in a category by itself and all the others could stand alone. Self-righteousness. What can I do to earn heaven? I can be good enough, they say. I can accomplish enough. I can say the right mantras. I can climb the right mountain. I can give enough money. Whatever ism you want to put in there, they all amount to the same thing. You see, it's not just the Pharisees that seek to justify themselves in the eyes of God. It's all people. That's why Luke says, he, he said this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, and viewed others with contempt. Now, I, I told you in the beginning of this sermon that, that I speak of this parable and I refer to it so often that my own children have memorized what I say about it and probably you have too. And here's what I say based on this parable. If any of us are going to be saved, if any of us are going to be made right with a holy God, we have to come to God on his terms, which are empty hands and outturned pockets. This is the attitude of the tax collector, not the attitude of the Pharisee. The Pharisee came to God and he said, look what I've got for you. Wouldn't it be a feather in your cap to have me on your team? Look at me compared to these other sinners. It's pretty obvious who the, who the best one is. Pick me. The tax collector, he, he's off over in the corner trying to be unnoticed, can't even lift his head to speak. And he said, Lord, my hands are empty. Not only are they empty, they're dirty. They're stained by sin and corruption and, and deceit. And Father, my, my pockets are turned out. I, I don't have anything you need and you, you don't lack in anything I could give if I had it. That is, he came with an attitude of, of humility and, and brokenness. And, and that's why the scripture says over and again in a multitude of ways that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And friends, I'm going to say something that may offend some of you. It's not just Pharisees. There are a lot of Baptists with this attitude. And they say, Pastor, I've been in church all my life. I, I've been in Sunday school. I was a cradle baby. And now I've, I've been in church 70, 80 years. I've, I've never killed anybody, never been unfaithful to my wife. In fact, I, I put some money in the plate pretty regularly. Certainly, if anybody's going to heaven, it's me. Dear friends, the Bible talks about two paths and two roads. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that there's a small gate and a narrow path that leads to heaven, and few there be that find it. But he says there's a broad path and a wide road that leads to hell, and many are on it. 
See, that, that small gate and that narrow path is through Jesus Christ. John, John 14, Jesus says, I am the way. It's that same definite article that the tax collector used of his sinfulness, Jesus used of his righteousness. He said, I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father for, but through me. And so here's the summary of that. No one goes to heaven for being a good Pharisee, for going to the temple twice to pray, for giving alms to the poor. No one goes to heaven for being a Baptist. No one goes to heaven for being baptized. No one goes to heaven for tithing. The only reason people go to heaven is that they recognize they're unworthy of it. The Holy Spirit opens their eyes to that truth and they cry out in desperation, Lord, have mercy to me, the sinner. And so my question to you is, that, is that the way you've come today? Have you come today thinking that uh, you are deserving of God's heaven or his grace? You're, you're not. None of us are. What we deserve is, is God's wrath and eternal death. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But here's, here's the wonderful good news. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Even tax collectors, the worst of the worst. And I think that's why Jesus was so keen on holding up tax collectors because in that society, that's as bad as you could get. And so if you're here today and you say, you know, I see how God could let some of these good citizens into heaven, but not me. If he knew what I did, he'd never forgive me. Yes, he would. And by the way, he does know what you did. That's what grace is. Grace is not getting justice. Grace is getting mercy. It's getting something good that you don't deserve and, and you have not earned. And the Bible says that is the only way to heaven. Salvation is by grace through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this simple parable. maybe one of the simplest in all the Bible, and yet incredibly profound. In it, we have the, the gospel story in microcosm. You have all of humanity reduced to these two men. One's a Pharisee, and he is religious, and he is self-righteous. He believes that by being good enough or keeping enough rules that uh, somehow that will earn him heaven. And on the other hand, you have a person who recognizes his sin and guilt, is devastated by it, is crushed by it emotionally, and in an act of desperation and grief over his own sin, he calls out to you for mercy, and you grant it. He went down to his house justified rather than the other man. So, so Father, heaven is gonna be populated with sinners saved by grace. That's it. So Father, I pray if there, there's one in this room today who has been trusting in their own goodness, their own ability to please you, that Father, that uh, they, they would come to an end of themselves today. And they would realize that the only way to heaven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his, of Jesus Christ and, and his atonement, his righteousness imputed to our account. And for those of us who, who are believers in that, Father, we, we pray that every time we think of his grace, we would rejoice. And when we're tempted to draw attention to ourselves, 
Father, that you'd put that to death within us immediately. And that all honor and all glory would go to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.